Well, here in Psalm 62 and 63, we seem to have David again in, in the wilderness uh, while he's being persecuted by Saul, particularly Psalm 63. The, the heading of the psalm says that when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And he talks in uh, Psalm 62 quite often about God being a rock. And this is quite a theme in the psalms that we, uh, we have from his period in the wilderness. And going back to the historical account of, of David's situation with Saul, he hid in the rocks. He hid um, in the, the uplands, in, in the uh, very rocky sort of uh, uplands of, of southern Judea um, from Saul. And so when we, we read now in the Psalms that he says, God is my rock. It's as if he's saying, look, humanly speaking, I've hidden amongst the rocks. But actually, the bottom line is that God is my rock. And this uh, is a theme that he develops, particularly in this Psalm 62, that although, you know, inevitably one does depend upon human things, in the end, it is God who is the ultimate saviour, both spiritually and even practically. And he says in verse 2, he only is my rock. Now, in English, the word only is... uh, condensed down from the idea of only, he alone. And this is a reflection of what we have in the Hebrew, that the one God is therefore my only, my only refuge. And he keeps on uh, about this, verse 6, he only is my rock and my salvation. He only. Verse 5, my soul wait only, only upon God, for my expectation is from him. Now, the fact that there is one God, therefore, has a very strong moral dimension. Now, we who are not Trinitarians are so used to discussing and arguing with people who are Trinitarians and talking about the unity of God, that the whole issue of the unity of God can very easily become a pretty dead sort of theological issue, that we believe in one God, they believe in in a trinity, uh, etc., And of course it is true that there is one God. But when they ask Jesus, which is the first of the commandments? This is recorded in in Mark 12. The old uh, Jewish fascination with which of the Ten Commandments is the most important. He says that the first commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. So he sees the, the fact that God is one as a commandment. And in fact, the first commandment. Now, that's interesting, that the fact that there is one God is a moral issue, that it is a command. Now, just notice that, it is a command. And so, this is what uh, should lift all discussion of first principles, debates about doctrine, etc., far above the the simple level of who's right and who's wrong, who has the most consistent uh, biblical explanation, the most consistent, compelling network of biblical reasons. This lifts the whole thing up to a more practical and a more spiritual level. The fact there is only one God means that we should, as he says here several times, trust only, only, in him. I mean, if there were ten gods, well, you would choose your gods and you would, uh, or you would maybe uh, trust one God for one thing, another God for something else, or you would put 10% of your trust in one God and 10% in the, in the other nine, etc. But the fact there is only one God has huge implications. 
And in fact, Jesus goes further in Mark 12:29, where he says, when they say, you know, which is the one big commandment, he says, well, it's that God is one, and also to love your neighbor as yourself. It's as if he, he sees that actually that those two commandments are connected. They wanted an answer, one out of the ten. And he quotes two out of the ten and says, there is none other commandment, singular, greater than these. They wanted him to pick one out of the ten, and he picks two and says these two are one. And there is none other commandment, singular, greater than these, these two. So then the fact that God is one has very deep, very long implications and demands of us. Of course, on a practical level, there you are. Let's say you're driving, your car's broken down, you're in the middle of nowhere. What's your first thought? Get my cell phone out, call somebody, get someone to come and help me, uh, call some breakdown agency, flag another car down that's driving past. If there's one God, it's not that you don't do those things, but you throw yourself upon the one and only God. We don't use God as a kind of uh, a backup or an insurance policy, or we try all the other things, and if no other car stops, and if, we, uh, if we're out of cell phone coverage, and we can't fix the problem ourselves on the car, then we turn to God. But in the first instance, we are to turn to God, and whatever human help comes along, even if some uh, mobile mechanic happens to be driving down the highway right behind you, and stops and helps you, all the same, all the same, your first port of call and ultimately your only trust is in God. Now, the example of a, a car breakdown in the middle of, middle of nowhere is one, but actually we have these issues all through life, day by day. And the issue is, will I put God first? Will I trust only and solely, ultimately, in him? Or am I going to try the course of medication, the therapy, etc., and we'll see how that goes, and then turn to God? Am I going to try to run my own life in my own strength, get qualified, get a job, a family, etc., and then, I oh, yeah, sort of bring God into it? Or is he the first and ultimately, from our deepest, innermost being, is he the first and only thing that we trust in? Because that's the issue, what we trust in. And, of course, human society, which is based around disbelief in God, ultimately, uh, human society has created all sorts of things that we can trust in. And as technology and human uh, intelligence, uh, maybe, has uh, increased in some sense uh, over the centuries, and particularly, I think, in our own time, there becomes more and more opportunities to try to go it alone without God. So actually, of these words of David written there or thought there out in the, in the wilderness of Judea, they really speak to us like never before. <clears throat> Trust only in him. And of course, he addresses himself, verse 5, my soul. Wait or trust, expect from only God, from him alone, from the one God. And we need to talk to ourselves like this. These psalms are a great example, really, of self-talk, of the essence of Christianity, of the essence of spiritual mindedness. Now, how many times have, have you had this kind of self-talk recently? I mean, it's quite scary when you think about self-talk. We all tend to assume, oh, well, I don't talk to myself. 
like I'm not crazy, um, but we all do. We, we all talk to ourselves. Um, that's actually what makes up life. And what is the content of your self-talk? Are you talking to yourself like David did? These psalms are an amazing window, really, into the mind of David, into the mind of a great believer. Uh, are you saying to yourself, my soul, trust only upon him, only upon him? Because my expectation is from him, because he alone is my rock. So then our expectation can so easily be from human strength, from education, from money particularly, from wealth, <clears throat> from human health and strength, etc. When ultimately our expectation is to be only from him. Now, he, uh, he, he talks here about his, his opponents, as he does very much. Um, and he, he says in verse 9 that, that men of low degree of vanity, men of high degree are a lie. If they're put in the balance, they're just lighter than vanity. Verse 10, don't trust in oppression if riches increased and such a hard upon them. Because God has spoken once, verse 11, and twice have I heard this, that power belongs unto God. Now, we know it's a Bible theme, that when God repeats something twice, as he, he did uh, with the dreams that Joseph interpreted for Pharaoh, this is because he is giving an emphasis. So God is really emphasizing this, that power belongs to God, and that power is not in human wealth. Now, we see so many spiritual lives being messed up by a desire to acquire wealth. I will go for this high-flying career. I will uh, work these extra hours, take on another job, do this, that, and the other, because that, as I see it, is the way to wealth. And that is seen as power. If I have money, then I can do so much for God, etc. This is the way the flesh reasons, and you hear it so often. But the emphasis here could not be stronger that for those who are in the, the realm of God's rulership, the kingdom or the reigning of God, if you like, um, those who move in the sphere of how God works, money and power are not the same thing. The fact they are in, in society generally is neither here nor there. But God has said twice that power belongs unto him and if riches increase, don't set your heart upon them because power belongs to God. Wealth and power, for us, are not the same thing. Even though, as I say, they clearly are pretty well the same thing in society, in the world around us. Now, <clears throat> he sort of invites us to share his, I think, almost despite of, um, of worldly advantage. And this these verses 9 to 11 fit into a, a major biblical theme that you see throughout the scriptures and that is of a despising of worldly advantage all through the scriptures particularly in the Psalms Proverbs um, and by implication in so much of the historical material and very clearly in the teaching of Jesus and Paul there is an encouragement for us to actively proactively despise worldly advantage to despise it so often we catch ourselves saying things like 
oh yeah, I, I met this guy, you know what, he's pretty smart, you know, he's got a holiday house in uh, Spain, and he's got a uh, you know, such and such card, and his uh, two sons are, are both uh, studying for their PhDs in some prestigious university, da da da, and list all these things, and we sort of raise our eyebrows and nod our head knowingly and say, you know, he's a pretty smart guy. This is absolutely not as it should be. And, you know, I find myself saying that sort of thing, so I, I'm not um, saying I'm innocent of this either. But this kind of worldly advantage is despised and laughed at, absolutely derided in the Bible. And that is a major theme. And this example we have here in Psalm 62 is one of quite a lot of these examples. But the whole idea that all that kind of stuff, education, good looks, wealth, possessions, cool things that you own and do, etc., that all that is some kind of, uh, well, you know, to be respected. No. It is to be derided. Because to think that that is power before God... Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Now, <clears throat> this is not just for David. You see, he talks about himself and how he talks to himself, etc. And he shares with us, as I said in verse 5, how he talks to himself, my soul, wait only upon the, upon the one God. He's describing to us his inner self-talk when he tells himself, verse 6, he only is my rock and my salvation. And then, verse 8, he says, Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. David's just poured out his heart before God uh, and recorded it for us. And now he says, no, you do the same. God is a refuge for us. But he's just been talking about how God has been and is my refuge. See, verse 7, my refuge is in God. Verse 8, Come on, all you people, God is a refuge for us. And then there is that telling word, Selah. Think about it. That's what he's saying. Meditate upon this. So the example of David, then, is being set up as the model for each of us. Now, <clears throat> talking about God's power, as opposed to human wealth, he concludes the psalm with verse 12. Unto you, O Lord, belongs mercy, because you render to every man according to his work. Now that's quoted, isn't it, in Revelation 22:12, right at the end of the Bible. Jesus is coming soon to render to every man according as his work shall be at the day of judgment. Now, because on one hand, God has this way of operating, that he does render to each man according to his work, therefore, wow, how much mercy belongs to God. How much mercy does he have to show if, in one dimension, if you like, he rewards and renders each man according as his work shall be? Because our works are so pathetic and we sin so much. And so that, I think, he, is his final thrust, that the power of God is not so much in money and physical power, etc. It is in this colossal mercy that he shows to people. That is his power and strength. And I think that is the implication of the psalm. That that is the ultimate power. That you forgive others. That you do not 
uh, allow their works to mean that you render to them according as their work shall be, and that's it. God renders according to every man, uh, according as every man's work is, but he saves us. Therefore, he says, wow, how much mercy you show, because you operate, in one sense, this principle of noticing every single act and not turning a blind eye, but noticing it and working out its uh, recompense. And yet you still love us and you still save us. That, I think, in the context, is his definition of God's power. Now, Psalm 63, as I said, begins with this comment that this was when he was in the wilderness of, of Judah. So this dates it, really, I think, to the time of persecution by, by Saul. And he talks in verse 1 again, talking to himself. Uh, and again, I have to ask us, what is your self-talk like? Try and catch yourself sometimes. Uh, what are you talking to yourself about? And as I say, don't, don't kid yourself that you don't talk to yourself. That's human life. That is the soul. And we all have a soul, an inner being. I don't mean an immortal soul, but the essence of human personality and character and individuality. And he, he says early, and I understand him to mean possibly the first thing that I will do is to seek you, but it could also mean first thing in the morning. I will seek you. And on a, a fairly pedestrian level, you, you can take the lesson there that how you start the day is probably a good indicator of how the day is going to go spiritually. And then verse 2 and verse 3, he starts talking about how he longs for the sanctuary, how he longs to see God's power and glory as I have seen you in the sanctuary. Now, while Saul was persecuting him, he wasn't able to go to the sanctuary, to the uh, tabernacle. And he asks God to reveal his power and glory to him there in the wilderness, as he used to see it in the sanctuary. And uh, you notice this quite a few times in the Psalms, particularly at that time of his life, when he really wants to be in God's presence that he, he really is so, so sad that he's, he can't go to the sanctuary anymore. He even one time fantasizes about being a sparrow that flies in there, um, and he just would love to be there. But he asks God all the same to reveal his power and glory to him there in the wilderness. And so, like a lot of, I suppose, ancient people, he had the idea that God was kind of geographically present in a certain sort of spatial location, namely the tabernacle. And yet because he couldn't go there, because Saul was persecuting him and had basically taken over the priesthood, he couldn't go there, just David couldn't go there. And yet he still finds he can have a relationship with God outside of that. Now, this is some comfort for probably all of us, but I think especially some who, for whatever reason, are unable to be there, as it were, in the, the more visible, in the more public uh, manifestation of God. They can't get to the meeting. could be that nobody gives them a lift. It's too far. They don't have transport money. It could be that uh, they got kicked out of church. could be. It could be that all sorts of politics are against them in, in that uh, ecclesia or church. 
there's a whole load of reasons. It could be that uh, you have nervous problems, you have paranoid attacks, that, that you have reasons why your own health, mental health, physical health, doesn't let you get there. It could be that you are in exile, either self-imposed or that you've been exiled by others or by situations. There's very few people who have actually not had this at some point in their lives. And for many people, they tend to stumble because of this. They can't envisage life outside the, uh, the visible church. They can't just get the idea that somehow God is still with me, even though, for whatever reason, I can't get to the meeting. So God taught David in those years that, look, I'm with you. And he had the spiritual ambition to ask God to reveal himself as he used to reveal himself to him in the sanctuary. He says, do it here, right in the wilderness. And so God, of course, is not limited by geographical location. He's also not limited by his church in that sense, that he can enter into relationship with you, with me, with anyone, where and how he wishes. Now, I'm not uh, deprecating at all attending ecclesial functions. If you can get there, get there, absolutely. Uh, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, well, don't bother about it. It's not important. I'm saying that if it happens that you are excluded or minimized from your uh, presence at such functions, don't think that, therefore, my relationship with God somehow can't function, because it does. And later on in, in the Psalms, if you try to put them in some chronological order, and it's, I mean the Psalms of David, in some chronological order, which is very difficult to do. Um, but if you try to do that, it seems to me that he increasingly, as he gets older, talks about how all the ends of the earth worship God. He has this vision for the Gentiles uh, accepting the God of Israel. And I think that God led him to that through these experiences that he had as a young guy when he was in the wilderness thinking, oh no, I can't go to the sanctuary. So does that mean I'm all through with God? And God reveals himself to him. And he starts to realize that it, it's not all about being at the meeting, as it were, in our terms, being in church. Um, that there is spiritual life beyond that. Now, again and again, I will emphasize that I'm not saying, well, yeah, if you don't fancy going, don't go. If you've got a slight problem with somebody, oh, yeah, just push off on your own. God will still be there with you. Absolutely not. I'm not saying that at all. Um, I'm saying that when, through situations beyond ultimately our own control, we are in that situation, don't think that God, God is somehow not there for you. Now, the psalm uh, implies that he's suffering from people who um, are trying to kill him and who are slandering him. See verse 9, but those that seek my soul, there's clearly a reference to Saul, who sought for David uh, to destroy him, but those that seek my soul to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by or upon that could be translated, they shall fall upon the sword. Exactly what Saul did, he fell upon his own sword, didn't he? They shall be a portion for foxes, but the king, 
as David, believing, although he is not yet king when he was on the run from Saul, um, but believing that he will be, but the king, that's David, shall rejoice in God. Everyone that swears by him shall glory, but the mouth of them that speak lies shall be stopped. So, although it seems that, uh, it, well, let's say you don't read very much about Saul slandering David and the historical record, it would seem from a number of the Psalms that are written at that time that Saul was running a major slander campaign against David. And so David sort of takes comfort that, well, one day I shall be king and uh, all those that are seeking my soul to destroy it are going to go into the lower parts of the earth and fall upon the sword. And then we who are righteous, basically verse 11 is saying, we who are righteous shall have a great party. That didn't happen. Saul fell upon his sword, and those that sought David's soul to destroy it did indeed perish. And what did David do? He almost has a, well he does I think, have an emotional and nervous breakdown. He weeps and weeps over Saul, and he, it wasn't just an emotion of the moment, because he dedicates uh, the rest of his life, or certainly quite a few years, to going out of his way to see how kind he could be to the remnants of Saul's family. And I think the lesson is that what you pray for, you will get in some form or another. But it may not be, it may not be what you would like it to be. Now it's a very hard lesson because we think of what we would love to have in life, we pray to God for it and we don't get it. But, you know, if you did get it, if you did get it, it might just be awful. And you might be like David just not knowing what to do with yourself because of grief, because you got what you asked for. Really and truly. You know? Classic example, of course, is, you know, young people in love think they're going to get married, and then the other side pulls out of it, and all they can pray to God is, oh, please may he change his mind. Please may she, oh, just see sense. And, you know, later on in your life, you, <laughs> well, you spend the rest of your life thanking God that he didn't listen to you. Um, in some cases um, and so <laughs> there's a whole load of other things and what I would say just practically is don't pray against people really don't pray against people may this that or the other happen to this person or that person because you know it probably might do uh, if you pray enough for it and uh, David was not a happy man because of what happened to Saul he was, I, I think the reason for his uh, emotional breakdown was because he kind of realized, well, this is what I prayed would happen, and it did. Um, actually, he didn't really learn the lesson either, because when you look at some of the Psalms that he wrote at the time of Absalom's rebellion, he says the same, you know, my, my enemies, those that are persecuting me, which was his son Absalom, uh, may they, this, that, and the other happen to them, may they die, basically. Absalom dies. And again, is the same old scene, isn't it? David has this huge emotional breakdown over the death of his son, um, just like he did over the death of Saul. So we need to think about what we're praying for. Don't just rattle off a load of requests thinking, yeah, well, I might get, might get a couple of them. Um, no. Believe in prayer. Take it very seriously. Because God is so sensitive to you and me. What you ask for, you will get. 
I do believe. It may not be in the terms that we expect it, but we will in essence get it. But the question is, is it ultimately what we really need or want spiritually? And that's why God's word must guide us in what we pray for and how we pray for it. Um, And the things that, that we should pray for must always be motivated by a desire for God's glory and a desire to see his work and his name, the things of him, progress.